And if you well, could, I, and if yeah. you could just explain to me what I can do and how to do it to actually focus and send the energy and all the do's and don'ts, the things that you were explaining, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I'll, I'll try. Yeah. Uh, actually, the beginning is what I send you as a PF. And I don't know if you read that, but... I got it, but if you could just start again, that would be great. Okay. I'll, I'll start with that. Um, I discovered long ago that I can talk to myself, that I can talk to my body, to my innermost self. Uh, my brain, my body, you know. Yes. Um, and, well, I, I can start earlier than that. When I was eight years old, I was living in Sumatra, where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And there were people who worked for us, and they had a little um, sort of a village behind our house and behind the buildings of our house. And I... I spent a lot of time there because they were very comforting to me. My mother was very strict and very definite in what she wanted me to become uh, or be, whatever. Hmm. And, but these people behind, I hate the word servants, but they were working for us and their wives and their husbands and their mothers and the babies and so forth. Um, anyway, those people accepted me as I was, mm. and that was a very great feeling, you know, that they knew perfectly well who I was and that I was white and I had preferences, I mean, you know, I had possibilities that they didn't have, yeah. but for the moment they accepted me as I was, and I, I have felt that uh, in other primitive people, they were not primitive, but I, have, I felt it in primitive people. And it's a very important part of what I will say that you accept, accept have, you have to accept what is, you know, who you are, what you are at this moment, at this second. And then I discovered when I was eight years old, I was sitting on the walkway between the house and the out, out buildings, you know, our house didn't have a kitchen and a, and a bathroom in the house. Mm -hmm. They still have the, the same thing here and in all the Pacific Islands. Um, it's not some, I mean, bathrooms and kitchens all must belong outside, but not inside your house. Anyway, um, I was sitting on the walkway between our house and the kitchen and so forth. It was a separate building. And a woman came who was not a part of our village, and she said, come with me. So I went with her, and we went around the garage, and behind that was the, the, the little village. I, mean, I, I call it a village, but I think there was five or six houses. And so I, she, she said, as we came around, I saw that the, all the people there standing around the man with a staff, and on the top of the staff was a sort of a, uh, a platform, and on the platform was a tiny little monkey hmm. uh, at, the, at the same height as his face. Mm -hmm. And he 
he had curly hair, which which meant he was not a Malay. He was another person, another kind of ethnic background. Mm -hmm. And I remember that after we came around, she said to me, can you tell me something about this monkey? And I said, oh, the monkey is dying. And she knocked me in my ribs, which is a very unmalay thing to do. <laughs> and she said, never talk about death. I said, okay. And I remembered that. And then as we came closer, she said, where other people could hear us, what do you see with this man and the monkey? And I said, the monkey has a little leather thing around one of his feet and his ankles, and he's tied down to this uh, platform, mm -hmm. and this, this, this thing around his foot is very uncomfortable. Can that be cut away? This monkey is not going to run away. He's been living with this man all his life. And so a boy ran to his house and came back with scissors, and they cut the, the rubber thing off, the leather thing off. And as soon as it was off, the monkey stretched his leg, and then, then he jumped on top of the head of this man in the curls. And everybody smiled. Huh. Everybody was very happy, you know, that this monkey was now signs of being happy. And so I went back, and then the woman came back to see me, and she said, you have a God-given gift. Mm -hmm. Don't ever start asking money for it. And I had no idea what she was talking about, <laughs> absolutely none. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, I have discovered that when I see somebody, or my children, for instance, you know, when they had a bruise or a hurt or a scratch or something, I could feel it. You know, I could feel it. And when I had, had my hand above it, I could feel that there was something wrong. Mm -hmm. And so one day I said, without thinking about it, I, I didn't say it out loud, but I said it in my head. I was talking to the boy. I know the son. His name is Chuck. And, uh, no, his, his name is Scott. Anyway, I saw, I talked to Scott in my head. I didn't really talk words. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, you, have, you can do something about that scratch. I know that inside of your belly, there are a lot of things you can do to, to heal the scratch and not feel the pain. Mm. And um, I, it just came to me. I didn't think about it. And in my, the next day, the scratch was gone. Wow. And so I realized that you can talk to yourself. And then once, much later on, uh, when I was professor at the University of uh, Hawaii, mm -hmm. I had a very big project in Micronesia, I don't know if you know where Micronesia is, yes. but it's a, it's a series of islands from uh, from Hawaii to Guam and then down almost to Indonesia. There's six different districts, as we call them then, now they're independent. Mm -hmm. And 
you were in charge of the United Nations and the United Nations gave the charge to the United States. And the first group we used as a, uh, uh, as a place to bomb with our atom bombs when we were doing research with that. Yes. And found out all kind of horrible things about what it does. And I remember that my my project was, is I was this was during the sabbatical, and so my project was to work with nine students and place students in all the six districts, and they would do a survey. They would ask the people what they thought about birth control or family planning, as we called it. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you can't call family planning because in Polynesia or Micronesia or all, everywhere else, family doesn't mean mother, father, children, but it means all the grandfathers mm-hmm. and, and the aunts and uncles and good friends. And, you know, so anyway, we call it birth control. Anyway, so I had to, my job was to first place each of these teams of students to one of the islands. And the, the islands were very primitive. There's no hotels, there's no, there's no nothing. Mm-hmm. But there was a plane that, that flies from one to the other. And then when I came to the end, I had to go back to the beginning and check how it was going. So I was flying back and forth. And the whole thing took six weeks. Mm-hmm. During that time, I had an infection, and I knew where the infection was because I had gone to the doctor before I left, and I knew what it was, that it it was not going to kill me, but it was very unpleasant and very painful. Mm -hmm. So in one of those islands, it's called Chuck, and one of those, it's an atoll, Mm -hmm. you know, New Moon Child is a big lagoon. And I went to one of, the, one of the points of the moon shape, and I had a meditation on talk with, talk with myself. And I said, I, I realized that this sickness that I had, this infection I had, was very painful. And so I said to this, this infection, I, I know that when I hurt, when something hurts on me, mm-hmm. that it is a message. The body tells me, pay attention, I am in pain. Mm-hmm. And I said, I get your message. I know what you do, what, what is happening, but I can't do anything about it at this point because I'm traveling. And there's no doctor anywhere, so I have to wait until we get it back to our room. Mm-hmm. And I repeated that several times. And I said, I said to this infection, tone it down. Just remind me every now and then, mm-hmm. but don't give me the hurt. And I found to my own surprise that it worked. You know, I, I lost the pain, but I didn't lose the infection. And so I went back after the whole thing was over. I went back to Honolulu and they gave me some pills and I got better. But, so I found out you can talk to yourself. Mm-hmm. You can talk. 
you can talk to somebody else it's inside and it's really talking without words okay it's in your mind it's in your brain if you, you, you say say it in your it's not without words i call it it's communication without words okay Hmm. You can do. 
And I know I'm positive of this. I know that there is pleasant truth. That's the essence of what I'm doing. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's talking without words or communicating, I call it. Communicating mm -hmm. without words. But what you communicate is a positive thing, positive attitude to the body you, you're talking to. To the inside of the person you're talking to, not the, not his brain, okay. not, not what he hears in his ears, but what what his brain and his inside hears from your thoughts, from your suggestions. Do you understand that? What I mean? Yes. I, I it, it takes some practice, but um, I am fairly convinced that many people can do this. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether everybody can, but I know that I know in my own life uh, I have lived with people who were very good at that. I've lived with the Aborigines told taught me this. You've read my book, right? Yes. Yeah, but my time with the Aborigines really changed my life because they they totally, absolutely, I am quite sure. They communicated without words, uh, and I, I adapted. I learned to, to hear what they communicated, and I could communicate back to them. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's, it's not unusual. I've known children, very young children, who all of a sudden came up with something that they couldn't possibly know. But they knew because they could hear something, you know, they could hear inside. And it's hard to explain these things because we, our, our culture is so opposite to that whole idea that we have no words for it. Yeah. But it is something that I am sure that we are going to uh, develop when when the whole world crashes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to happen within 10 or 20 years. Okay. I think that the world is so awfully out of touch with who we are, who we really are inside. I mean, we have politicians that do all kinds of crazy things. Um, and we listen to that, and we listen to preachers and to all these other people, but... It's inside of us. Um, I don't There are many there's stories that I've been telling on this uh, on, on my website, but the one that comes to mind now is when I was walking with these three boys, and the oldest was probably 17, 18, and the other three younger. And as usual, when, when I was with the Aborigines, nobody says anything. They don't talk. Mm -hmm. But I know and I can see on their faces that they're thinking and doing with, with each other. Hmm. You know, somebody smiles or somebody nods to, to somebody else. Hmm. I know that this is going on. And so all of a sudden, we were walking along fairly slowly, but they're walking along and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what they, what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the three of them stop 
and I walk one more, more step, and then I have to step back. <laughs> and I look at them and say, what's going on? And the oldest boy says to me, one word, Mati. Mati is the way for death. And I said, you're not dead. And I spoke English, which they didn't understand at all. Uh. They didn't understand Malay. They had their own language, and I didn't know very much of their language. Mm -hmm. But apparently they knew this one word in Malay that was Abmati. So I said, you're not dead. And they all smiled, and they said, no, they were not dead. And then something came into my head. I can't say it any other way. What you mean is we are dying out. And they all, yes, 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 that's what they meant. Mm. And so, you know, that was like a confirmation that I can hear what they say. Mm -hmm. And so then I said to them, also in English, why do you think that you're dying out? Mm. They said nothing, but the thought came into my head because the way we live is impossible in your world. Mm. And they all smiled, they all nodded. They were not smiling, but they all nodded, yes. That you got it. They could see that you got it. Yeah. Mm. And it is true. I can't, ever since then, you know, I've been trying to live a day with, I was very simply. Uh, I don't like money, I don't like to buy food, I like to eat what grows around me, and for a long time I could do that. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm, I can't see very much, so it's very much more difficult. But, uh, you know, we have such talents inside of us, all of us, and we don't use those talents, those inner talents, those Um, 
I, you know, the, the essence of it is that you have, you, you have talents, you have uh, possibilities, physical things. I mean, your body can heal what is going on in your body if you, tr if you trust it. Um, I, I'm, when I do that, I, I never touch a person. Mm -hmm. um, but I, 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 my right hand feels where something is not going on. It's not proper, it's not working. Mm -hmm. And then my thought is, make yourself as normal as you can be. I'm not asking you for miracles. I'm not asking you for things that you cannot do, but you can make yourself as normal as you could be. Yeah. Make yourself as normal as you can be. You just keep repeating that. And when I, 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 I think I have, I did the story when, in an earlier thing uh, on my website that, um, in the 1970s, I was traveling a lot in the South Pacific, and we always had to go because it was on a grant from the United States, the federal Congress, no less, but we had a grant for a million dollars a year, and the university gets 43% of that, but I was chairman of the Department of International Health, and we had the management of the rest of that money that was $560,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And I had to travel to a lot of islands in the Pacific, and it took time, and it took uh, problems because, you know, there, at that time there were no airlines, airlines, so I had to go by boat or something like that. Anyway, um, when I came through Guam, in Guam, there was an American airline, in Guam and Samoa. And so when I came to Guam, I used to stay in a hotel until the connection came that I could go to Honolulu. I used to stay in a hotel, I was getting stage for it. But I knew these people, I knew them very well. The husband is a judge and she was a doctor, a physician. She was the head of maternal and child health. And I knew that she had had trouble with a blood clot in her left thigh. Mm. And so after dinner, you, I usually had dinner with them on the night that I was leaving because the plane always leaves at one o'clock or midnight or something so that it can come in. I arrive in Honolulu at eight o'clock in the morning and I can go to work. So between dinner, and in and midnight there was a sort of a dead time and the judge went into his room so I was sitting with him in with Joy. I was sitting with Joy and so she showed me a whole stack of x-rays. I mean like five or six inches wide. Mm -hmm. and ten centimeters twelve centimeters no more than that, fifteen centimeters. Wow. Anyway, she showed me all these x-rays, and they all showed that there was a blood clot quite long, two, two or three inches. Hmm. Uh, it changed it a little bit, but it kept being there at the same, at the same place. 
so she told me that she had made an arrangement with the, with the hospital of the, of the University of California, UCLA, um, that they would sure do surgery on it and take it away because if it gets loose, mm -hmm. it goes to your heart. Yeah. And so, but, and so, but the, the hospital had told her, uh, wait until we have time to do this properly. And so she was waiting, and she had all these x-rays ready for the trip. So anyway, they took me to the airport, and I arrived in Honolulu at 8 o'clock in the morning. I went to work, and at 2.30 in the afternoon, I had to travel by United or Pan Am, but she could travel on other airlines. Mm -hmm. And so I came to uh, I came to Honolulu, at 2.30 in the afternoon, she called me from the airport and said, when we came back from the airport to see you off, I had a phone call from Los Angeles, and they said, come as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. uh, I took the next plane, which happened to be a Japan Airlines. And so I'm waiting for my connection to go to L.A. And I can't come to see you, and you can't come to see you to the, to the airport because we we're almost leaving. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know, bon voyage or whatever I said. And for the next two and a half weeks, I never even thought about it. Mm -hmm. it to me, it was a very minor kind of thing. Oh, yeah, I said after dinner, you know, we were sitting, and after she showed me all these x-rays, I said, would you like me to do a healing? And I, 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 I could kill myself for having said that, but mm -hmm. it just came out. And she said, well, yeah, you know, why not? You know, really, not, nothing, nothing to do. And so she lay down, and I remember she lay on a Persian, Persian carpet, and I sat behind her, her leg and held my hands over the place where I knew this thing was. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, make yourself as normal as you can be. Make yourself as normal as you can be. I didn't say it out loud. Yes. I, in my head. And so it was quiet for like 40 minutes. And then we talked about something else. We never mentioned it. So she left at 2.30, went to Los Angeles. Um, I forgot about the whole thing. Two and a half weeks later, my dean, that was School of Public Health, and I was in School of Public Health, mm -hmm. my dean, who was my friend, said, can you come down and see me? And I thought we were going to lunch. We did that quite often. Mm -hmm. But it, he put me in a chair on the other side of the desk, and he kept asking me questions about my mother and her religion and my father and his job and and I said, you know all these things, you know, we've been having lunch for years, and you know, I've told you my, my, my whole life. Yeah, but then finally then he said, do you know some, some, somebody called Joy? I said, yes. Of course I know her. I mean, we went to, we went to Ann Arbor University, University of Michigan, at the same time, mm -hmm. she was in medicine and I was in psychology. Um, and he said, did you know that she had an embolism? Mm -hmm. I said, yes, because she showed me all these x-rays. 
And then he said to me, when she came to UCLA, she had shown them all these x-rays, but of course UCLA had to do their own x-ray. Mm -hmm. And this is like two and a half days after I had been there. Not even that, less than that. This x-ray that, that the hospital took showed nothing. Mm. There was no embolism. And then they did a blood test and they found out there never had been a... Uh, because when an when embolism disappears, there's more... Uh, some, they can see it in the blood or something like that. So anyway, all of a sudden it dawned on me what had happened. Mm. I didn't even know that. And I, I imagine that, you know, after they found that she had nothing, I, I, I traced, I was told later on what had happened. The hospital had called the Navy Hospital in Guam, and they had said, your x-ray machine is wrong because of so-and-so and so-and-so. Because this woman didn't have an embolism ever. And so the hospital in Guam was really mad, and they called the Navy in Washington, D.C. And the Navy sent somebody out to look at the x-ray machine, and the x-ray machine was perfectly okay. And so then the, the Navy and the hospital in Guam and the hospital got into the big discussion and, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and what about your X-ray machine? And they must have asked her, what did you do? What happened between the last X-ray and your coming here? Mm -hmm. And she must have mentioned my name. And I was professor of public health. <laughs> and so at that moment, the door swings open I was sitting at the dean's office. The door swings open and the dean of the medical school, which was separate at that time, comes in, red in the face, and points at me and says, you charlatan and all kind of bad words. Uh, I'm gonna sue you for practicing medicine without a license. Hmm. And no student of mine is ever gonna be able to take your courses again. And on and on and on. Well, I'm not good at that kind of confrontation. Mm. I had all kinds of things that I could have said, but I just got up and walked out. Mm. And so I thought about it, and the next morning I went down to see my dean. Now, by the way, I knew that the doctor, that the, the dean of the medical school was very much against the dean of the public health because he thought that he felt that public health was part of medicine, mm -hmm. which it isn't. But anyway, five years after that, the medical school did absorb the, the school of medicine, mm. uh, school of public health. But anyway, so I walked out, and the next morning I came back to the dean, and I said, I don't know what to do, but uh, if, if nobody can take my course anymore, except uh, people from other professions, uh, and I had had a very good, I had a course that I taught, it was called Culture and Passion, no, um, Cultural Aspects of Health and Illness, something like that, 
Yeah, I forget the afternoon, but it was a very popular course mm -hmm. with medical students as well as other students, but medical students. And in the course, I because it's a graduate school, you can cho choose how many students you want, and I always choose chose no more than twelve. Mm -hmm. I taught I taught that course for many years. And so I did experiments with them. One of the experiments I did, I'll tell you about, um, I said, put your hands on the table. Mm -hmm. And then I went around with a thermometer and wrote down in a book that I had the temperature of their left hand and their right hand. Mm -hmm. oh, and I went around the table. And then I, and then I said, now make your right hand left hand colder and your right hand warmer. Hmm. There were always people that said, oh, da 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 And I said, no, just do it. <laughs> so after two or three, four or five minutes, I went around and tested all the hands again. Mm -hmm. And I found out that almost 50% of the students could do that. Uh -huh. The left hand actually did get colder and the right hand did get warmer. And so I told them that. And I asked, how did you do it? Yes. And the white people, the American people, uh, said, oh, I did this with the blood pressure and the veins and the arteries and all this bullshit. <laughs> but it didn't work. The people who were from small islands, and they were a doctor or a nurse or something like that, they shared their shoulders with the I just said, get colder or get warmer, and that works. Hmm. I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but it's true. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do that, but you can't give instructions to your body. You can't tell, do this, do this, do this, do this. Your body knows how to do that. And so I, I discovered, I did other tests like that, quite a few of them. And I found out that, that people who are not from Western society, they're not bound by all these professions and drugs and surgery and all that kind of stuff. People who are more primitive, they know how to do that. Hmm. They can do that if you ask them. And so you give them the idea, you can do a lot of things. I don't know whether you can heal a cancer, but you can certainly do something about the pain the cancer gives you, and you can do something about the cancer. You can stop, to, stop it to grow. Hmm. I'm absolutely convinced of that. It's mm. not me who is healing you. You're healing yourself. Just give, you, give the suggestion mm -hmm. to the person. And don't get into details. Don't tell how to do it. The body knows that. Don't mention cancer. Don't mention the word in your mind. Mm -hmm. you know? I know that there's something in you that is not working properly. Make it as normal as you can be. Make it as normal as you can be. 
and you'd be surprised how much a body can do. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely convinced of that, and I've, I've did it. I've did it with many, many people. Robert, let me ask you one little question about that, which is, you know, when you were working with Joy, you asked her, you said, would you like me to give you a healing? And she said, yes. And so it seems to me that that's an important ingredient to the process, is that the person either asks you or agrees to the process, the healing. Because it doesn't seem like it would work if... If they didn't. Yeah, I think in a way, I don't know whether you have to ask and agree, but he, he, he has to trust you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about your brother. Yeah, he I, has to trust you, mm-hmm. and you can sit with him and say, I have something that I want to talk, that I want to give you, but it's not in words. Mm-hmm. Um, you, can, you can put your hands on. on not on, but in front of his face or something. You can make some gesture uh, that you want to help him. Mm-hmm. But it's not in words. So tell him, I'm, I just want to be with you. Mm-hmm. I just want to be with you and give you some good energy and give you some good feelings. And so it's a quiet thing. You know, you don't say anything in words. And he doesn't have to say anything. I would be surprised if he doesn't say something after this, after he's done this for half an hour. Mm-hmm. I think he will feel something. I tried, you know. I this this is really. I tried for three nights mm-hmm. because I can do. I can, cannot do much. Uh, during the day because I have too many other things and people call and the noises and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, the best time for me is like between six and, eight and nine in the evening mm-hmm. when it's quiet, you know, when it's just kind of, everything is kind of sleeping. Not sleeping, but going to sleep. Yeah. And so you're, you're feelings, 
remember that you have powers, you have abilities within yourself that can do something about something that is not working. Um, you know, it's, it's a short course. <laughs> uh, it, it really works. Yeah. I don't know whether it is just me or other people can do that, but no, I know that other people can do it too, because I have taught it to other people, but maybe, I don't know, but it's worth trying. Thank you very much. It, it's, it's been difficult for me because, you know, I got so distracted by, uh, I couldn't sleep one that one night. Mm. Uh, because I, I kept trying and trying and I had slight, three times I had slight feelings that I had contact, that I, I could see him at, uh, in my mind. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's too far away, and I think the main thing is the time. Mm -hmm. Because at 7 o'clock in, in the evening, here it is 7 o'clock in the morning over there. And in seven o'clock in the morning, you know, it's not a time for for reflection and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, it's a morning, and the light is coming up, and people coming in. You have breakfast, you know, whatever. But uh, my sister lives in lived in Holland. Mm -hmm. She died in September, and we had it finally. We, we worked it out that if we called each other, it would be between six and seven. My six and seven is in the morning, and her six and seven is in the beginning of the evening. Yes. And so we found out that's the only time we can communicate with words. And I, she died in September last year, mm -hmm. and uh, rather, rather suddenly, and so I talked to her talked to her quite a few times, mm -hmm. one time after another, you know, and uh, it was very difficult for me because I had a son who died, mm -hmm. and I was with him, and I hold his hand when he died, and I, I worked with hospice mm -hmm. in, in California, and in hospice, in that hospice, there are different hospices, but that hospice trained people to be with people when they died. And so I was trained for six weeks, excellent training in nursing essentially, but to be with people when they died, you know, to, to be aware and to give them your love and to, your attention. And, mm -hmm. um, so I learned a lot about dying. And I learned that any, almost everybody that I sat with when they died has all this energy in the head going on, like it, it's pain and it's, it's confusion and it's forcing and re rejecting and feeling. All these things are happening, and I can see it like around the head, you know, this, this swirling thing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it stops, and it's peaceful. And I, I, I had that with my son. I mean, from one second to another, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I was... A, a 
death, it's like a birth. You know, the, the baby comes through narrow canal, is forced, is pushed, is squeezed, and all of a sudden, whoop, yeah. all of a sudden, it's peace, new. I've learned an awful lot about death and writing, but even from in my childhood. But I've also learned I'm very much, uh, I have lived my life after knowing the Aborigines. I, my, I had a career in, in public health, and I had to give that up because of this stupid dean of medical school. But, mm -hmm. So I, I quit, and so then my second half of my life was very different because I decided, I went to Seattle. I, I didn't know what to do because it was also the, my divorce was finished at the, at the same time, at hmm. the end of 1979. And so I, I felt I couldn't be in Honolulu anymore. Everybody knew me. I had a, a clinic and I had a, had a program on a radio. And all of a sudden, you know, there was this with this man, what is he doing? He's a, he's a rich. Mm. Um, it was very difficult, and so I went to, to California. And when my car came, I debated where to go. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was 56 or seven or something. And I had no idea how my, what kind of life I was going to have. So I decided, well, I'm just going to live my life day by day, you know, in the now. Hmm. That's what I had to learn from the Aborigines. You don't know anything about the future. You don't know anything about the past. All there is is now. Mm -hmm. And so I went, I, I said, I can't live here. I can't live in a city. I have to live somewhere else. But so I can go. I didn't want to go to the East Coast. I didn't want to go to the South, I didn't go, want to go to the Midwest. So it was either like Northwest or Southwest. Mm -hmm. So for some reason I decided to go Northwest to Washington, Oregon, Washington, that area. Mm -hmm. And so I drove to the mountains, to the sea, to the mountains, to the sea. Nothing appealed to me, nothing struck me as this is where I want to be <laughs> until I came to Seattle and I realized that I, my, my travel checks were gone. I had one left. And so I called, I got, it was a Sunday. I, I bought a paper, newspaper, and looked for apartments and I found an apartment that was close to where I happened to be. And, uh, I called up, and the man said, don't go anywhere, I'll be right there. <laughs> and he came, and I, I, I rented that apartment. It was not furnished, there was nothing in it, but the floor was pocket, about uh, soft, you know. So I stayed that night. I had one big suitcase and a little suitcase. And the next morning, for some reason, I thought I should call my parents, who were in Holland, mm -hmm. rather than my children, who were in Hawaii. Hmm. I don't know why, but I did. So I called 
And she said, boy, are you lucky. <laughs> she said, this woman who owns that place left this morning to go to Florida for the winter. <laughs> and she reduced the price by $10,000, and she's willing to take payments for it. Oh. You don't have to have a mortgage. Mm -hmm. And the payments were like $110 a month. Oh. And I had, I had to live on $600 a month. So I said, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> so I moved in the next day, it was in October, and uh, <laughs> I found out that the house was just wonderful, more than good enough. It has one bedroom and one space and an old fireplace that didn't work, I found out. But it didn't have any water. Uh. The water had, there was a there was a dug wall 60 feet deep, and it had gone dry. Mm. Well, I didn't know that. I thought, well, maybe this is how people live on this island. <laughs> so I went to the nearest town, Langley, and they had a park with a shower. <laughs> so I went to Langley every other day and took a shower and got some water and to bring it home. And... After a while, I heard, I found out, when I got to know people, that you can have a drill well, a well drilled by people with machines. Mm -hmm. And so I called the drillers, and they came over, two really strange people. That they said, oh, we can drill in your, in your drill, in your well house. It's a very cute little thing, new thing, overgrown with moss and so on. But then we have to cut this tree and this tree and this tree. I said, ah, oh, you're not going to cut any trees. Mm -hmm. um, they shrugged their shoulders and said, okay, but we can't come today anyway, and we come in two weeks. We gave, they gave me a date. And they told me how much it cost, you know, so much per foot. And then on top of it, they have to do something that the state requires, and da 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 da. Mm -hmm. And so I could figure out how much it would cost. And then the above thing was a fixed price, and then you add to so much per foot down. And so <laughs> um, I went back in the house, and they said, Oh no, I, I went to find. Um, Willows. I thought I was going to douse for water, mm -hmm. and then I couldn't do that. I didn't work. It didn't work for me, and so I kind of forgot about it. Half forgot about it, and so the night before they came, or the afternoon before they came, all of a sudden I realized the morning these guys are coming, and I have to tell them where to drill, and I have no idea. But I remembered. But by that time, I knew every tree. Hmm. I walked around the place, and I knew every tree. And so I, all of a sudden, I had this idea, it should be over there. Hmm. So I went outside, got a stick, put it in, and I looked at it, and I thought, no, it's not exactly there. So I took the stick out and put it put a foot and a half behind it. <laughs> I said, this is, this is it. So when they came in the morning, I said, this is where you're going to drill. And the man tried, 
was going to take the stick out, and I said, no, 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 leave that. That's where, where it is, exactly there. Mm-hmm. And they, they shrugged their shoulder, okay, okay. And I said, you can only go 148 feet down because that's all the money I have. Mm-hmm. And they said, come on, your neighbor on this side has it welded at 286 <laughs> down, and on the other side is 315. <laughs> I said, that may well be, but I, all I have is the money for, for 148 feet. <laughs> okay, they shrug their shoulders. I mean, it's, I have to pay them anyway. <laughs> so I went in the house, an hour later, one of the men came to the front door, which is on the other side of the house, and he said to me, what are you, some kind of witch or something? Hmm. We found water at 147 feet. <laughs> and it's so much water that you could have two houses here because it's the crossing of two aquifers. Exactly at that point. Exactly at that point. So I learned, you know, when you... In America, people are trained to look straight ahead. Mm-hmm. You have to have direction. I mean, I, I want to become a doctor. I want to become this. I want to study this. I want to have a job. I want to have so much money. It's all straight ahead. It's like walking with blinders. Mm. I found out if you open yourself up and you walk around in the now, there might be a door on the left. And there are lots of doors on, on the way by, I found out. And so you look into that door, doesn't look very good. So you look, go on, there's a door on the right. You look at that, oh, I say that. I'll try that. Hmm. And so my life was like that. So the first, in in December, no, November, I realized that I was living there. I had water by then, but I didn't have any income. I didn't have a job. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do. What what could I do with this island, you know? So I walked around. And I found out that there was an organization uh, that had a bulletin board. So I put on the bulletin board that the organization was on on the highway and it had five different, no, six or seven different things to do. It had to to be sort of a social work thing on this island. And, you know, it's it's quite isolated from the rest of... uh, uh, of the state, saddle, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and so uh, I found out that uh, I put a little note on on the property that I had bought was a tiny little cabin that had one bed in it and a table and a chair, no water, no no nothing. <laughs> but I said I have this little tiny cabin for rent for $50 a month. And I put that note on. Mm -hmm. The same afternoon, a woman called up, came to my house, looked at the cabin and said, that's just perfect. Hmm. We have have hired, um, she said, I'm the head of an organization that's called HELP. 
and the organization has all kind of programs, and I am working for them, but I'm really in the program with a daycare center. Um, but you have hired a man, there is a sort of, that was at that time, a local American Peace Corps, not outside of the country, but in the country. Mm -hmm. So the people got paid a little bit, and they could afford $50 a month and take baths at night in my house. And so she said, this is perfect. And we got to talking, and so she said, you, you know, I really don't like the job that I have with Operation Help. Would you like to be the director of, <laughs> of Operation Help? <laughs> I said, sure. I'll be the director of Operation Help, and I'll get and uh, I did, and I got six hundred dollars a month. Wow. More, and so I did that for a few weeks. And I found out that all it was was a lot of paperwork and a lot of bureaucracy and having to contact this bureau and this co this company. And it was really strange. And every time I had to go to the board of directors and get their permission or their signature or something like that, and they were all kind of resisting this whole thing. So I said to them, to the chairman of the board, I said, we should have a meeting. Uh, and so we had a meeting, and I had some big pieces of paper that I hung on the wall. And I, I went around, and there were six people, I think, seven people. And I said, I want everybody to tell me what you expect from Operation Help for, say, five years from now. Mm -hmm. What would you like to have to see? And so they all talked, and I wrote it all down. And after that, I said, you know, I get the impression that you really want to get rid of it. Mm. And they all said, yes, we would like to get rid of it. Oh. Because this started as a soup kitchen during the time that there were, uh, you know, hippies. And they came, and they didn't have any money. Any money. And so we had a soup kitchen. But it has grown and it has other things now. And we don't like to do all this stuff, all this, you know, bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'll take six months if you pay me $600 and I'll place all these programs in other programs mm. and get rid of Operation Help. So he said, okay. So I did that. I started and I got rid of many of the programs. Mm -hmm. But the daycare center, I couldn't get rid of. Nobody wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. So I got the parents of, together. I said, I want to have a meeting with the parents of the ch of children who go to the daycare center. And I explained to them that, you know, we couldn't get rid of that. We had to get rid of, of the program, but nobody wanted it. And so one of the women said to me, well, we can start a daycare center. Would you, do, would you help us start a daycare center? I said, sure, mm. I'll help the daycare center, $600 a month. Mm. And so I did that. Wow. And so I started the daycare center. I appointed somebody, and I went, we got a house, and we got an organization. 
And the paperwork was unbelievable. You know, we had to have it. Uh, we had to contact the city and the county and the state and the federal government, and they all had to, to, we had to do things. The windows could had to be so many inches from the floor. And crazy things. And I did all of that. All really terrible things to do. But it, I knew how to do that. Mm -hmm. you know, I did all of that. And so the, the daycare center is still going by now, by now, which is like 40 years later. Wow. And it's thriving. And so, and then I started it uh, up, uh, how do you call it, uh, a store. Mm -hmm. and, uh, one store that is owned by the people, what do you call that? The co-op? Yeah, co-op. So I started the co-op. <laughs> and then I started something else. But it was, I learned that when I just go along with whatever comes in front of me, mm -hmm. it works. <laughs> you know? I, yes, after six years, I moved from island and I, I felt healed from what happened in Honolulu mm -hmm. and I went south and I again trying to find out the place where I would like to be yeah. and I ended up in uh, in the middle of California mm -hmm. I always forget the name of the place um, anyway it's on the ocean it was uh, Pismo Beach yeah, something like that. Santa Barbara. No, no, north of that. Oh, yeah. Um, um, I forget. Yeah. I, I, I have a, Oxnard. Yeah. I have a problem in my, my mind because I'm 93 years old and uh, 10 years ago, my oldest son lives on the mainland and he has a degree in tropical medicine. Uh, tropical agriculture, and he knows this land that I live in now, mm -hmm. six acres, and he knows all the plants, and he planted some of the fruit trees and stuff. And so every time he comes in the summer, we walk around and he tells me, oh, this tree, but he always knows it by the Latin name. Mm. And I hate these Latin names, <laughs> because I know the same trees, and I know the plants, because I walk, I used to walk around all the time. Mm -hmm. But to me, they're identities, you know, I hate that. So I told my mind, don't remember these names. Hmm. And now my mind, you know, now it is three years later, my mind forgets names. Yeah. I can't help that. Hmm. Anyway, when I was in this town, I had just bought a computer and I was frantically wonderful about the computer, what I could do. Mm -hmm. And so I did graphic design and I got, got all kinds of clients. And then one man said, you know, I have a stall in the mall, the mall of that city, of that town. Mm -hmm. It's very famous because it goes around and around it curls around, it's not one space, but mm -hmm. street, sort of. And I have a space in there, would you mind sitting there with your computer and your printer, 
and people can come in and ask you to do something. Mm -hmm. I said, sure. So I sat there in the mall, and people would come in and say, I need a business card design. I need a logo for my business. And can you type this for me? It's an it's a, uh, application for a job. Mm -hmm. All these things. <laughs> I said, okay, sure, I did all of that. I made a lot of money. <laughs> And so one, com one company was going to, had just started, and they went to me and they said, we did design a logo for this company. So I did that, and they liked it so much, they gave me $1,000. Wow. And then they said, would you like to be the artist for our company? And <laughs> $10,000 for a year. Wow. I said, yes. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, it was not much work. Mm -hmm. I didn't work seven days, five days a week. I worked one day a week, perhaps. You know, making business cards for everybody, making forms for sales or this or that. I don't know what. So anyway, I made quite a bit of money during, during that time. And then I, I went to a... Uh, at the beginning of AIDS, you know, the, the disease, mm -hmm. I didn't know anything. Nobody knew anything about it. But it's the beginning that, you know, the time when people started to die. And so I, I went to the um, hospice people and said, I want to do this training. And they trained me. It was very excellent training. And so then I spent the next two years doing that. Mm -hmm. And I went and I spent, I had some wonderful experiences. I mean, really um, heart-wrenching, but wonderful experiences with people who I could help die, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a whole other story. Yeah. Anyway, the point is that I discovered in my life that I have to live every day by the day, mm -hmm. all there is. I live in it now. And, um, and I've also learned that I and other, everybody, everybody has more ability to heal himself or herself uh, than you think. Mm -hmm. Because we don't think that way. We have, we have learned to think that when you have headaches, you go to a doctor. Yeah. When you toothaches, you go to a dentist. When you break an arm, you go to a hospital. I mean, there are things that we can do ourselves. I've learned that with many people. And so that's what I'm trying to do, to tell you, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and it's not in words. You don't talk to your brother, but you just be with him, and in your mind you say, make yourself as normal as you can be. <laughs> make yourself as normal as, as you can, can be. be. Robert, thank you very, very much. I'm, okay. I'm full right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I have a lot more stories, but we read some of the things. I have something in, my, in mind that I'm doing now. Okay.
Yeah, thank you very much. It was wonderful to listen to you and to just get the information, and we'll be practicing. Okay. All right. Okay. We'll be well. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.